Utility Fleet World. It's Kurt Moreland, Associate Publisher with Utility Fleet Professional, with another episode of Under the UFP Hood. You know, in the early beginnings of March, I had the opportunity to go to the NTDA Work Truck Show, and the first day they have the Green Truck Summit. And I was fortunate to catch uh, one of our Utility Fleet brothers, Matthew Betts, who's an expert fleet optimizations uh, position at DTE Energy. And he provided uh, some insight and some interesting things. So Matthew, I wanna welcome you to uh, UFP Under the Hood. Thanks, Kurt, I'm happy to be here. Um, tell us a little bit about how you became a fleet manager and also DTE, what, what is the area of the country that you guys handle? Sure. Yeah, I, so my background, I, I like to joke that there were Model Ts when I first started in fleet, but it's not <laughs> quite that bad. Uh, I started in fleet back in the 1970s, uh, so I've been in the industry for quite a while. And it's interesting because I was in uh, major fleet sales for almost all of my career and met a gentleman that at the time was the director of fleet for DTE uh, at a conference, and he asked if I might be interested in changing my uh, position a little bit. So I moved to the other side of the desk, uh, and, and now I'm on the fleet management side of the uh, program. Uh, DTE's got a pretty big and diverse fleet like most utilities. Uh, we cover uh, uh, all of the state of Michigan, uh, but with different roles. So in the Metro Detroit area, uh, we have uh, we are the electric utility. Uh, and for the rest of the state, the outstate area of Michigan, we provide uh, gas utility, uh, but never both uh, in any location. Let's dive a little bit into your presentation. So one of the things that you said that really caught my attention is that you guys wanted to create a rolling laboratory. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, so we were given a, a, a goal uh, very early on by our CEO uh, who said he didn't want to necessarily be on the bleeding edge of electrification, but we wanted to be a leader. Uh, and so I interpreted that uh, to be sort of a thought leader in the electrification process. Uh, and so we put a lot of work, uh, many people on the team, not just me, uh, we put a lot of work into, you know, how do we structure uh, an EV program so that we're more certain of the success and avoid some of the pitfalls that other uh, fleets had experienced. And so we created what we call the Experimental Rolling Laboratory uh, and that is uh, really just uh, putting some, I guess, structure uh, around uh, adding EVs to the fleet. And so, uh, you know, we, um, we do a lot of research about, of course, like everybody does on any vehicle, uh, about what uh, EVs we want to introduce to the fleet, what uh, business roles that they could meet, uh, and then we buy them. Uh, we introduce them to the business units and the mechanics that are going to be working on them, so the drivers and the mechanics. And then we have sort of a one-year period where that group of vehicles is in what we call the experimental rolling laboratory. And it's just a organized way of introducing these vehicles to our fleet, uh, where we do a lot of education around those particular vehicles, 
we survey both the drivers, the business units, and the garages about how the vehicle's uh, operating. We uh, share feedback with the OEM uh, who are very interested in you know, how their vehicles are performing in our fleet. And of course, being uh, based in Detroit, we have very close relationships with at least the, the US uh, OEMs, the, the you know, GM, Ford, Chrysler guys. Uh, and then uh, at the end of that year, we decide you know, which vehicles are gonna continue to be ordered and if any, you know, maybe have had a less than stellar experience, we would uh, discontinue ordering. We're going to have to keep the vehicles in the fleet and live with them, uh, but we might not order additional batches of those vehicles. That sounds really good. It sounds like you guys are really on the cutting edge, and that's why I'm so happy that you're our guest here um, under the UFP hood, uh, because it is April. I think uh, Earth Day's coming up. Uh, everybody, it's a hot topic, sustainability and EVs. Um, tell me about some of the vehicles that you currently have in your EV fleet and what works for you, including uh, EPTO. Yeah, so we've got uh, a couple of things uh, that I think you'd be interested in. Uh, for right now, um, the EVs, the BEVs, are limited to you know light duty cars and and light pickups. Uh, so we've got uh, just under twenty Chevy Bolts. Uh, we've got about fifty Ford Lightnings, and we've got um, another twenty five uh, Chevy Silverado EVs coming uh, later in the year. So light duty. Uh, we'd love to put some vans in the fleet, but. Um, the vans we've looked at so far uh, do not meet our range requirements. Uh, so, you know, we continue to look for uh, some vans that we can test. Uh, we do have, we're just a week or so away uh, from introducing our first class six truck, uh, which is a, a Peterbilt that'll be configured as a stake truck and used in our business support groups. Uh, and then, um, uh, for our EPTO, we do use uh, Alltech as our supplier uh, for almost all of our uh, utility type vehicles. Uh, and we are putting uh, GEMS units uh, on those so that uh, the vehicles don't have to idle uh, the whole time they're out at the job site. And we're having some pretty good luck with uh, the GEMS units. Well, Matthew, you guys are being really aggressive. Uh, those are some uh, larger numbers than I typically hear. So uh, that you've got a, a lot of experience. Um, let's go back to, you mentioned a little bit about uh, training and shop maintenance. Um, what's it like to set up uh, your own EV charging station? What are some of the challenges that uh, you or, or one of our listeners might run into? Yeah. Um so there have been challenges. I'll, I'll take the shop part first. I really don't have a lot to do with operating. In fact, I don't have anything to do with operating our shops. We do have uh, 26, I think, garages in the Metro Detroit area. Uh, I, of course, work with them uh, when we're looking at adding uh, a, a model, an EV to the fleet. We want to make sure that it's something that isn't going to cause the garage any problem. So Will it fit in the building? Will it fit on the hoist? Is it something that they can work on? 
uh, we are uh, we have a, a training group within DTE and specifically several people assigned to fleet. So we are uh, working with them. They in turn are working with the OEM and we'll provide mechanics uh, in our shops that are gonna have EVs assigned to them uh, with uh, OEM training on how to maintain uh, EVs. Because of course there are you know, some things, while there's advantages overall in maintenance cost for an EV, there are some things that we need to be uh, concerned about. Uh, we did get fairly aggressive on the charging program. Uh, with uh, the number of vehicles we anticipate uh, delivering uh, over the next couple of years, we wanted to make sure we had more than adequate charging. So in our locations around the Detroit area, I've already uh, had about 135 uh, EV chargers installed uh, at those locations. That number will be 300 uh, by the end of 2024. And, and there's you know that there's some some challenges when you're installing that many uh, chargers. Uh, you know, uh, one of them is just the cost, right, of buying and installing that many chargers. You have to uh, trench through asphalt parking lots. You know, it's not just the cost of the charger. In fact, I think that's one of the tips I would give people is to try to work with um, within your company or you know a trusted. Um, uh, a supplier and try to figure out what the average cost of installing uh, a charger is going to be by the time you consider adding power uh, to a facility that might not have enough power uh, for the amount of chargers that you're looking to install uh, and the cost of the chargers themselves. Um, and I, I like to tell people it's sort of like the wild, wild west. So that's my second warning is be really careful about the providers that you're working with uh, in terms of buying the chargers. Um, make sure that they can deliver on what they promise. Uh, follow up on, on references and, and maybe even go look at some of the installations, uh, but, but really choose somebody that you can trust uh, for uh, the charging. Uh, the other thing that we didn't I guess I shouldn't say we didn't think of it. We're learning as we go uh, is home charging. So while DTE does not allow any personal use of our vehicles, uh, we do have drivers that are considered home start uh, because they might need their vehicle, you know, in the middle of a night if the storm pops up. Uh, and so we have a program to install home chargers uh, in those drivers' homes. And we've had quite a few of those, dozens. Uh, installed, uh, but we um, had to learn how to develop a reimbursement program for those drivers. So they're using their own power at home to charge those vehicles, and it's our responsibility, at least DTE feels, it's our responsibility to reimburse those drivers for the power. Uh, and there are some good programs out there, but we we had to find them and uh, we found that they might not be as developed uh, as we thought they would be. Uh, so we're working with those providers and helping them understand our needs uh, and getting our drivers on a good reimbursement program. That sounds really good. And uh, again, it sounds like you guys are really out in front and uh, have a, an aggressive program 
Um, another quick question for you is uh, you guys had some of the worst storms in the history of Michigan go through. How did that affect your charging stations? Did you guys lose any productivity because of the storms or did you have a uh, uh, backup power in place or how, how did that all work out for you? Yeah, I, I would like to say that, and, and a couple of these storms were historic in nature. We had an ice storm last month uh, that was the worst storm in 50 years for our company and the second worst storm in over a hundred years uh, history of, of our company. Uh, and uh, they were you know, quite damaging to the area. We had a lot of power outages. Uh, and of course it impacted some of our drivers ability uh, to charge their vehicles. Uh, our program is still very new. Uh, so we probably had more of an impact than, than we will a year from now. Uh, but, but we're still in the process of investigating some portable charging solutions. So should we have a storm like this and drivers are expected to be out on site for maybe 10 or 12 or 16 hours at a time, if their vehicle has to idle, well, not idle, but uh, if they need their vehicle running, uh, they're likely uh, going to need more power when they're on site. And so we're investigating a couple of different ways to get um, portable charging out to those uh, work sites uh, so that uh, um, they can charge and continue working. And, um, you know, I'm happy to say that there are some really good solutions out there. Uh, we just haven't decided on which ones we'll use and, and didn't have them in place for this historic storm. Yeah, and back to the charging, um, you know, I myself have found, you know, when, when people first started researching this, I only thought there were a few players in the market. But as I go to industry trade shows, and uh, even I'm going to put out the word that uh, ACT Expo, which is out in Anaheim, California, actually next month in May, uh, you really start to see you have a lot of options. There's a lot more vendors out there providing chargers than the big brand names. Yeah, there there are a ton. That, that's sort of what I was referring to with the wild, wild west. Uh, there are a lot of suppliers. Uh, we're starting to see that some bigger companies are buying up some of the smaller players. And I, I hope to see them adding some structure around, uh, you know, how those uh, companies operate because, um, you know, you can run into a situation pretty easily where a lot of promises are made uh, and it's hard for those smaller companies to keep those promises. Uh, and that causes a lot of problems for a utility that's trying to implement a program. Yeah, um, one of the things that I heard at the Green Truck Summit, and maybe you can address it, is um, there's no standardization in the industry. So different vehicles and different charge companies can have different uh, plugins. Yeah, there. You know, that's starting to become less of a problem. That was an issue. Uh, all of the level two chargers that we have now use the J seventeen seventy two. Uh, plug that has become a standard. Um, you can get around some of the issues. Uh, for instance, Tesla has uh, its own uh, type of charger, but you can get adapter kits. So if I have a vehicle that is not a Tesla 
and the only charger that's available out at a public charging spot is a Tesla charger, I can use an adapter to have one of my vehicles charged there. And But you're right, it's not like a number of other areas of industry where the entire industry has settled on one standard, uh, but I think we're probably moving in that direction. That's a great tip. All right, well, we're going to lighten things up a little bit. Anybody who follows my podcast know that I love a good wildlife encounter story. And as luck would have it, you mentioned uh, that uh, you are a uh, wildlife photographer. So tell us a little bit about that and tell us about uh, any uh, interesting animal encounters you've had out there in the field. Well, what a, what a great way to take a little break uh, in a podcast or an interview like this. Um, yeah, so I do sort of fancy myself as an amateur, and I'll, I'll emphasize the word amateur uh, photographer. I like nature photography in general, but uh, wildlife in particular. Um, I do a lot of bird photography. There happens to be a great sanctuary near my home that I can go to. Uh, but the one that, uh, that came to mind uh, was actually more of a wildlife uh, encounter. I was out uh, visiting Rocky Mountain National Park. And as anybody that's been out there uh, knows, uh, you go through the town of Estes. Uh, and so we stopped at the famous uh, Stanley Hotel uh, and uh, had lunch before going to the park and asked for some advice. I particularly wanted elk pictures. And they said, oh, well, here's, you know, the areas that you go to within the park, but keep your eyes open as you drive through Estes before you even get to the park, because you're likely to see some elk, you know, roaming around. And, and I just, I didn't take it seriously, but I'm driving down the main drag in Estes. And all of a sudden, my friend that was with me reached over and she grabbed my arm and said, stop. And I, I thought I was about to hit something I didn't see, but I, I stopped the car and she points her finger out her window. Uh, and here there are two elk uh, with their horns locked right on the roadside. Uh, and it, it was like a little roadside park or something because it looked like wilderness behind it. And so I just took a picture right through the open window of the car and if you see it hanging on the wall in my house, you would swear I stalked these elk uh, and crept up on them and got this really amazing picture when it was taken right off the side of the road. Of course, I don't tell anybody that story uh, when they compliment me on the picture. I let them think I, I stalked them and found them out in the wilderness. Well, that's a, that's a great story. Yeah, normally when you're driving through a community park, you expect to see the local Little League game, not uh, two elk uh, engaged in combat. <laughs> That's right. That's great. You know, and I recommend uh, people take that trip. Our family took the trip too. And uh, we were trying to find moose. And uh, somebody said, at, when you get to the other end, so you, you start uh, in Estes, when you get to the other end, there's a campground, pull in there, sometimes there's some moose there. And so we pulled in and, and this guy was um, uh, packing up his tent and uh, we said, hey, uh, do you know where we can see some moose? And he goes, yeah, there's one right behind me. And we thought he was kidding us. And sure enough, we looked behind him and there was a young moose uh, eating in the marsh right behind him. So that, it's a great area. 
I wish somebody had given me that advice. I would have driven all the way through the park instead of turning around halfway. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll have to email you that uh, some pictures that I took of, of that encounter. But, you know, you mentioned uh, 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 Stanley, um, the Stanley Hotel, and uh, that has kind of a tie into what we're talking about, too, because uh, didn't he invent the steam car? Yeah, there was actually one in the lobby of the hotel on display. Yeah. It's also so, where the movie um, The Shining was filmed. Exactly. Yeah. So here we are talking about EVs and alternative fuels. And uh, we have a we have a tie into a, a famous hotel in our conversation. So let's get back to business a little bit. One of the things you did in your presentation, which I thought was really, really interesting, is you don't just hand your drivers the keys. You actually do an EV driver safety training because uh, everybody has been brought up to drive a uh, gas combustion car, but not everybody has ever driven an EV car before, and you feel it's important to uh, walk them through it. Yeah, we're, we've got a, a couple of things, uh, you know, that we do from an education standpoint for our vehicles, but more specifically to safety. DTE, like most utilities, is very keenly focused on safety, uh, and so we wanted to make sure we covered any area uh, that might be different from driving an ICE engine. And so we've worked with um, our internal training uh, department uh, that does creates their own uh, training videos. Uh, and we created actually a series of three videos. They're very short and easy to watch. Uh, but one of them is how to charge an EV safely. Another is safety features of the vehicle itself. Uh, and then the third is uh, what to do in case of a crash, because that is uh, a little bit different than if you're driving an ICE engine. So, for instance, we recommend that uh, they get out of the vehicle as soon as it's safe to do so. Uh, they follow all the regular procedures they would follow if they were in a crash with any other DTE vehicle. But we recommend that they stay at least 20 feet away from the vehicle and upwind from the vehicle in case there's any damage uh, to that battery pack. Uh, and then we uh, created a QR code, a little decal that goes on the, on the uh, dash of every EV uh, that reminds drivers to watch the video uh, before they drive the vehicle. Now for the uh, assigned driver, that gets us, those videos get assigned to them through our normal training uh, process. Uh, and uh, they have to watch those videos and, and uh, get credited for that through training before we'll hand them the keys. Uh, but for anybody else that might just jump in the vehicle to move it or something, we still want them uh, to have that same information. And then the last part of that EV training is before we hand the keys to the driver, we invite them to what we call a walk around. Uh, and we go over again, the safety features. We talk about one pedal driving. We talk about the fast acceleration, uh, any other features about the vehicle. And then we ask them to take a little quick spin around the parking lot uh, so they can feel the one pedal driving and also the acceleration. Uh, before they take the vehicle out on the road. You know, that's that's fantastic, Matthew. And, you know, you bring up a good point. Um, the first EVs that were out, they were kind of like glorified golf carts, but the EVs that are out now, 
they're a lot faster than people may anticipate. So I think training to give them a feel for that is a good idea. What do you think? Yeah, well, uh, I can tell you from personal experience, I've, you know, like I said, I've been in fleet for, it seems like forever, had a chance to drive almost every fleet vehicle there was, you know, on the road. Um, but I got a chance to test drive uh, a local EV manufacturer here in Detroit. Uh, they put me in one of their pickup trucks uh, and told me that it does zero to 60 in 3.8 seconds. Uh, and a gentleman that I was with said, I don't believe it. I've got a Corvette that won't do that. But I jumped on that in a safe spot. I jumped on the accelerator and I've never had my head thrown back into a headrest uh, as hard as it was in that vehicle. Wow. That's a cool story. Um, I wanted to ask you another question, too. One of the things that uh, um, you use the term ICE, so we don't want to assume that everybody knows what ICE stands for. So go ahead and give us a definition of that. Sure. ICE is uh, a reference to internal combustion engines. Okay. And then also for those who are not familiar with charging, there's different levels of charging, isn't there? Yeah, uh, most of our chargers, so the 135 that I mentioned, are level two chargers. Uh, so for a typical vehicle, you know, if it's down to 20% charge and you want it to get up to 90 or 100%, it's going to take about eight hours. So those are designed, in our case, for overnight charging. Driver uh, finishes with his shift, brings the vehicle back to the location, plugs it in, charges overnight, it's ready when he comes in or she comes in the next day. And that's also true with the home chargers. They're level two. We do have some uh, or one right now, but a couple of others planned uh, DC fast chargers. Uh, and those would provide that same charge in just over an hour time. So uh, the, the issue though is, uh, you know, bigger trucks like that class six truck are designed to be continually charged on a, on a level three or a DC fast charger where your smaller vehicles, every time you use one of those uh, DC fast chargers, it can degrade the battery a little bit. So you're, you're looking to uh, come to some um, equilibrium, I guess, uh, between, you know, do I want to wait eight hours or do I need to charge it faster? And over the lifetime of the vehicle, how many times am I going to need to fast, you know, fast charge because I don't want to degrade the battery to the point where the vehicle isn't useful anymore? That was an excellent explanation. Um, I have a note here. I, I don't know if this was from your presentation or not. True or false? A hundred vans charging takes the same amount of electricity or power as a Walmart store from one day. Was that from you? Yeah, um, and and don't don't uh, hold me to that. I think that's what I heard uh, uh, the gentleman say. I heard somebody from DTE doing an industry presentation, and what he was talking about. It's actually a really good point that I'd like to bring up in in terms of another tip, uh, and that is call your utility early. And if you are a utility, then get some internal knowledge. Uh, you know, uh, to play uh, and working to your advantage. And so in his situation, he was talking about, you know, look, you might have a, 
a local plumbing company that has a hundred vans and they think they're going to just turn, they want to become all electric, which is great for the utility and for the environment. Uh, but they think they're just going to install a hundred chargers in their, you know, on their little lot uh, with their building where they keep their vehicles. And they don't realize that there's probably going to have to be more power run to their property. Uh, you know, their property probably doesn't have adequate power to charge a hundred vans. Uh, and so that was the story he used to sort of uh, emphasize that point. You you used a term which I really liked. Uh, was it CI? Yeah, continuous improvement. Uh-huh. So, so we, that's, I guess, my other tip uh, is um, one of the things I was lucky enough to, to have available to me is a lot of internal resources at DT. And somebody recognized early on that using electric vehicles was going to be a big change uh, for our organization uh, in many different aspects. So a lot of organizations have a continuous improvement department or CI, and they help you create processes. And at DTE, we have a wonderful department. I've used them a number of times. We've partnered with them. They've done great work. But we have another group uh, that I think was even more impactful, uh, and that is called change management. So where CI helps you develop the process, change management comes in and helps you recognize all the different areas where this is going to impact somebody's job or they're going to have to do something differently. And then they help you, they've got a hundred different tools that they will help you apply to the situation to minimize the backlash that you might get. You know, so it's all about anticipating uh, how this might be different for the driver and what he's going to have to do, and how do we explain it to him up front so that there aren't any surprises, and how do we get feedback from him, uh, you know, so we understand where the pinch points are and where they're uncomfortable, and then, you know, what do you do to address those issues? Uh, so those probably, uh, between those, that group, and our internal facilities team, so I had another expert assigned to my group uh, from facilities, and he's the guy that has all the knowledge about how do you get more power uh, to the buildings, all the, the sort of knowledge about our buildings and the condition and the shape and the services they have to them now. And probably as importantly, he's used to working to the industrial uh, with the industrial electric uh, contractor uh, so that they work together. All I need to do is say, we need 20 chargers at this site. And they go in and figure out how to do it and give me a quote on what it's going to cost. And they're the ones that get all the work done. Uh, so, so, you know, big picture, I guess, my uh, suggestion is just leverage whatever expertise your company has to offer. Take advantage of it. And it's going to make the job a lot easier to accomplish. Well, speaking of expertise, Matthew, uh, this has been a great deep dive into the subject of sustainability and EVs. Uh, again, I just want to ask you uh, if you have any final recommendations uh, for our listeners, because I look at this podcast as not just going to utility fleet managers, but it's appropriate for all types of fleet managers. And I also want to toss in 
Uh, did you work with Clean Cities? Because I find Clean Cities is a good resource for people just getting into this. Yeah, we are uh, members of Clean Cities. Uh, we also have a, a little bit odd since we're in the Midwest, but we have a connection with uh, and actually hosted last year's conference for CalStart, uh, which is really focused more on the West Coast. But we have a, a very active uh, Midwest group for CalStart. Uh, and so we've partnered with them. So yeah, all the uh, organizations out there that gather knowledge and expertise and help each other go through these processes are worth the effort uh, to get involved with and, and to try to share information with. Well, well, again, I want to thank uh, our guest, uh, Matthew Betts, the expert fleet optimization at DTE Energy for being our guest here at uh, Under the Hood with UFP. And uh, thank you again, Matthew, for being our guest and, and, and making some time in your busy schedule to be with us. Thank you. Great conversation. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I just want to remind all of our audience out there to roll safe out there. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of utility business media and its employees. It is strongly recommended that you discuss any actions or policy changes with your company management prior to the implementation.